in Ephesians and chapter 3, the third chapter of <clears throat> Ephesians. Verse 1. <clears throat> For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, in behalf of you Gentiles, if so be that ye have heard of the dispensation of that grace of God which was given me to you, Ward, how that by revelation was made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in few words, whereby, when ye read, ye can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men, as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to wit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of that grace of God which was given me according to the working of his power. Unto me, who am less than least of all saints, was this grace given to preach unto the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery which for ages hath been hid in God who created all things to the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places might be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through our faith in him. Wherefore I ask that ye may not faint at my tribulations for you, which are your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, that ye may be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inward man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, to the end that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be strong to apprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye may be filled unto all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus unto all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then in Colossians chapter 1, in the Colossian letter, and chapter 1 and verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and fill up on my part that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I was made a minister according to the dispensation of God which was given me to you, Ward, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid for ages and generations. But now hath it been manifested to his saints, 
to whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ, whereunto I labor also, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. For I would have you know how greatly I strive for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be comforted, they being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, that they may know the mystery of God, even Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden. This I say, that no one may delude you with persuasiveness of speech. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As therefore ye received Christ Jesus our Lord, so walk in him, rooted and builded up in him, and established in your faith, even as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So we just bow together in prayer. And shall every, let every one of us now, very definitely, we prayed for other matters, let us all in our own heart really ask the Lord to grant to us that spirit of wisdom and revelation this evening. Lord, we just bow here in thy presence and we want to confess and recognize before thee, Lord, that unless thou art here, and unless the Holy Spirit really does fulfill his ministry amongst us in leading us into the truth as it is in Jesus, then, Lord, we know that this time will be without real and eternal value. But, Lord, if thou art here, then it means thy word will live to us. It will come to dwell in us richly in all wisdom and knowledge, Lord, there will be a consequence and a result of the speaking of thy word. To that end, Lord, we appeal to thee. Make thy presence the reality of this evening, we ask. And as we come to thy word, Lord, we take that anointing which we need for speaking and for hearing. Lord, wilt thou do something in our hearts. For those who may feel, well, they know something about this matter, bring it with such freshness and vitality, O Lord, that it will come with a greater discovery of thyself. And for those who do not understand it at all, Lord, we pray it may not be overwhelming, but rather, Lord, it may come as a ray of light into the heart. In thy light, then we shall see light. And, O oh Lord, it will be a progressive, growing, as it were, unto full noonday. Dear Lord, do this, we pray. Make this evening a time of revelation and illumination, Lord. We're not so many in number this evening, but Lord, thou canst draw so near to us that, Lord, something happens in our hearts that will make it all worthwhile, and we shall give thee all the praise and all the glory in the name of thy Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, now this evening, I want to talk about a matter which uh, is really rather uh, 
was generally relegated to what is called the deepest of the deeper teaching. And um, uh, people tend to feel, oh dear, uh, to start talking on a matter like that, we're going to be lost right from the start. But I don't believe so at all. I believe that the Lord can give us such help and such grace this evening, and as we prayed, such illumination and revelation that um, we shall begin to see something clearly as we have never seen it before. And the days in which we are living require clarity of vision. We live in the midst of people, of believing people, um, who uh, are used to contradicting what they believe in practice. It is a, a spirit that has gone right through Christianity. That we believe wonderful things, we believe in ideals, we believe in tremendous truths, but uh, as for the practice of it and the experience of it, well, it would shock us if in actual fact it was to be so. And of course, we, all, we are all very, uh, e it's, it's very easy for us to blame everybody else and to say, well, of course, they don't practice what they preach. The fact comes down to you. Anyone who says of somebody else they don't practice what they preach is normally not practicing what they preach. In other words, in the final analysis, the only way you and I ever really become aware of truth is not just by the preaching of words or the preaching of truths. It is because the truth has got into that person like fire. And somehow then, the words and the preaching become a kind of, they coalesce, and, and, and somehow we're affected. We all know that when we see a life, however weak and with whatever number of failings, in which the Lord is dwelling, and in which the Lord is manifesting himself. Now this is what we really need. So this evening, I'm going to um, embark upon um, a matter which I shall explore a little this evening by the grace of God, and then we will leave it over the prayer and Bible week, and as the Lord helps us for a, perhaps one or two Thursdays, we will take it up and see how the Lord will lead us. Tonight we shall start on the foundation of the whole thing, but later on we shall come right down to the practical relevance of all this in our life as the people of God here in Richmond, in your life, my life, our family life, every aspect um, of our life. Now, the, the phrase that has been so much with me is this little phrase which you will find in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4, whereby when ye read, ye can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. Ye can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. This um, chapter 3, as we call it, of the Ephesian letter, is, I think most of you are aware, a parenthesis. In other words, the Apostle Paul was writing this letter, or dictating this letter, and when he got to um, what we call chapter 3, verse 1, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, he suddenly broke off on a digression. 
And in chapter 4 and verse 1, he comes back again. I, therefore, the prisoner in the law, beseech you to walk worthily of the call wherewith ye were called. And this chapter 3 is a kind of uh, heavenly digression. Now, many preachers are guilty of, of digressions, not always heavenly. Um, but uh, um, most preachers um, are at one time or another um, drawn off on this way or drawn out on that matter and, and digress from the matter. But having said that it is in one sense a heavenly digression, a kind of parenthesis, that is, it's in brackets, don't for one single moment think that it's just a confused jumble um, of thoughts out of the apostle's mind. Not at all. This digression actually comes to the very heart of the matter. As is so often with the apostles' um, sigh, asides, it, it, it comes right behind the scenes to the whole matter that lies behind this Ephesian letter, and indeed behind everything. So it is not to be overlooked, or as it were to be treated as secondary, uh, of secondary importance, that his real theme, which he began in chapter 1 and 2, and which he goes on with in chapter 4 and 5, um, is the main and fundamental matter. And this digression is uh, secondary. No, not at all. It's as if the apostle draws aside the veil of the Holy of Holies and takes us from the holy place into the most holy place of all. As if suddenly, by the Spirit, in this digression, in a flash of divine inspiration, he brings us immediately to the heart of the whole matter. That, I find, is tremendous. What is the significance of your salvation? The real significance of your... I don't mean that you've been saved. <laughs> Some people think that's the significance of it. I've been saved. I've been saved from sin. I've been saved from hell. What is the real, eternal significance of your salvation as far as God is concerned? Why did God bother about us useless little bits of clay? Why did he labor with us? when he could, with one single word, have cancelled out everything and started all over again. What is the significance of your salvation? What is the real significance of Christ's coming into this world and of his finished work on the cross? What is the real significance of all God's dealings with mankind? Why did he start with Adam? And when Adam and Eve failed, why did he go on with Shem, with Abel, and, with, and then later with Shem, and then with Abraham, and then after Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph, and on to all the great uh, line of the people of God? What was it he was doing? What is the um, key to it all? What is the significance of history itself? 
is the history of the nations just one uh, sort of coincidental mass of details? Or is the history of the nations something over which God rules with something like the apple of his eye, something in his mind the whole time? In other words, it's not just that God has an eternal object in eternity, outside of time, but time itself is related to that objective of God. What is the significance then of history itself, of the nations, of the world, of all the great empires that have come and gone, of Israel? Its exile and its regathering and its final salvation and destiny. What is the significance of the creation of this universe and of mankind? Why did God begin the whole matter? And why has he persevered? Now I believe that this little phrase the mystery of Christ introduces us to the heart of this matter. We come to the answer to all this question in this little phrase, the mystery of Christ. For instance, take Ephesians 3. Do you think we could open one of those doors? That's right. And the air is very dry in here because of the heating. Um, if it gets drafty, we'll close it again. Chapter 3, verse 3. How that by revelation was made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in few words, whereby when ye read ye can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men. From Adam to that time, as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And then he explains it. To wit, that's it in my version, modern versions will cut that out, I expect. To wit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know what that means to you. But evidently, this whole mystery of the Messiah is to do with the Gentiles becoming fellow heirs. Fellow members of the body, that was an altogether new phrase, never before used. Fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises. What promises? All the promises God made to the patriarchs, to the fathers, all the promises God made to the prophets, to Israel, to his chosen people, to his elect people. Well, I say that's something worth considering. So this thing that's been hid for generations has now been revealed. But is it not a tragedy 
that the vast majority of Christian believers have no idea as to the mystery of Christ. They just don't know what it means. In fact, most of them will say, oh dear, that's too theological for me. They'd creep away, you know, sort of... Um, and yet, if I understand what the Apostle Paul is saying, he's, he's telling us that this is the birthright of every child of God. Then look again in this same chapter, chapter 3, uh, from 9 to 11. Listen to these marvelous words. This is the Apostle again speaking. He says, And to make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery which for ages hath been hid in God. What a wonderful phrase. Have you ever thought about it? Which for ages hath been hid. Where has it been hid? Hid in God. So it's come out of his heart. It's come out of his, not only his mind, but his heart. It's been hid in him, locked up within the very being of God. So this is no small matter. This is something absolutely tremendous. This is something essential, something fundamental. It's been locked up in the very being of God. And now the apostle says, it's my job to make all men see what is the dispensation. And the word dispensation is a dreadful word, uh, uh, one of these theological words. But un unfortunately, you will see in, uh, I think it's unfortunate it's dispensation because people get the idea of dispensational truth and they carve everything up in so many ages. Now, there may be truth in that, but uh, I think it's a shame that as soon as we use the word dispensation, people get a kind of connotation. I think it's rather good in the New American Standard Bible where it says to, to make all men see what is the administration of this mystery which has been hid for ages in God. You see, the word is management. <laughs> it's household management. The word is the sort of running of a household, the administration of a household, the, the sort of watching the stewardship. That's another word for it. The stewardship of the whole thing. And he says, to make all men see what is the stewardship of this mystery, what is the administration of this mystery, which has been hid for ages in God. And then he goes on, who created all things. So we get a hint there that God created all things with this mystery locked up in his heart. This mystery, this secret, was the real significance of why he created all things. The universe, the things which are seen, the things which are not seen, mankind himself, itself. Now he goes on, to the intent that now unto principalities and the powers in the heavenly places might be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now here's another wonderful word. So he purposed something in Christ Jesus our Lord. It wasn't some uh, coincidental purpose. It wasn't some secondary purpose. It wasn't some subsidiary purpose. It was the eternal purpose of God. That is going right back in times before eternal. God had a design, a plan, an objective, an ultimate goal in the light of which he created the universe all things that can be seen as well as not seen, things visible and things invisible, and then created mankind. And when mankind fell, 
he already had in his heart the whole answer to the fall in the person of his own son. Well, that's very wonderful. It's rather a lot. It's almost overwhelming at a first thing, but it's rather wonderful that according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you will see, those of you who've got the revised standard version, that it very beautifully puts it like this, according to the eternal purpose which he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's not only that he's, well, he purposed this thing in Christ Jesus our Lord, um, it, 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 the Lord Jesus was, as it were, the foundation, the basis for the whole matter, but more than that, he realized it in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not just through him, but in him. He has realized something. The very thing that God wanted from the start for mankind, for the universe, he has secured in the Lord Jesus. He has realized in the Lord Jesus. Now, those of you who've got the New American Standard Bible, you will see it's rather awkwardly translated, but... I think very tellingly translated, it says, according to the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I, I don't know what you feel, but I, I think that those few scriptures alone just make me stand back and think, my word, what is in this matter? There's something tremendous in this matter. It doesn't matter whether you're an aged saint or a person who's just been saved a day ago or an hour ago. There's something in here for us. If you're saved, there's something tremendous in this for you. You're involved with this. This isn't something that, that is just left for theological minds. For those who go to theological seminary to die over. This is meant to be the kind of revelation that puts a dynamic into our living, an impetus into our service. This is the kind of thing which gives us a goal. It gives us a horizon. It lifts us out of one dimension into another. It's something which suddenly gives us the whole, as it were, thrust of our worship, of our service. For one little thing, let me just put it like this. I can't help but worship a God. Who has a heart like that? It would be marvelous enough if, he, if God was just sentimental and had in some corner of his heart some sentiment for me and saved me. But when I think that God has a plan for the whole universe and for mankind and in spite of its fall, has somehow or other laid a foundation through which he can reconcile the whole thing back to himself, bring it back to himself, and then finally fulfill his purpose, that's tremendous. That lifts this whole thing onto another level, doesn't it? Instead of the normal kind of thing we get in Christian circles where we sort of talk about streets, of gold, golden streets and pearly gates and angels dancing round with harps and trumpets and the saints sitting on damp clouds in glorified nighties <laughs> singing hallelujah forever and ever. I mean, you know, you, you can understand the world sort of thinking, well, we're old-fashioned squares, we should have gone out with Queen Victoria. This kind of revelation is the, is the kind of light, light 
that brings scope into our service and scope into our Christian life and living. It, it gives us a, 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 an understanding, perhaps, a glimmer of an understanding. Now, let's come back again to this matter. You see, it's not just only in this chapter. You turn to chapter 5 and verse 32, and we find that here the Apostle Paul's been talking about marriage. But when he talks about marriage, he comes to this verse 32, and he says, this mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and of the church. Now, in this incredible chapter, in talking about husbands loving their wives, and wives being subject to their husbands, and husbands treating their wives as their own flesh, their own body, the Apostle Paul says, you see, this whole matter of marriage is an expression in time of an eternal reality that is in the heart of God. And he ends by saying, this mystery is great, that two can become one flesh. He says, this mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and of the church. What does he mean? He means, listen to it. He means that we have not just become fellow partakers of promises given to the fathers and to the prophets, to the people of God under the old covenant. We've not only become fellow heirs with them of all that God has, as it were, made a heritage for his son. We have become fellow members of his body. That's the heart of the matter. In other words, the Lord Jesus looks upon every born-again child of God as his own flesh. That's why he said when the Apostle Paul, you remember Saul of Tarsus, was on his way to Damascus, somewhere on the Golan Heights, and was struck down by a revelation of, of the Lord Jesus, light that shone greater than the midday sun, and the midday sun is something in those parts. No uh, um, mist, no upper vapor to, to sort of uh, make it easier. And when he came, as it were, looked up, he said, he heard that voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And this heavenly one said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. It is hard for you to kick against the gold. You know, I, it was the beginning of a revelation. Later on, the Apostle Paul said in his Galatian letter, When it pleased God to reveal his Son in me. You might wonder when that happened. He went back to his very conversion. And perhaps later on when he went into the desert of Arabia for those three years and pondered and pondered and pondered. It must have come to him again and again. How could I have persecuted Jesus? He, he wasn't there. It was those disciples that I persecuted. Those that, I know it was wrong. But it was the disciples I hounded to death that I brought up false witness against. Then I did this and this and this and this. And it must have come as a revelation to him. No. When I touched the most insignificant one of those disciples, the most ignorant one of those disciples, the most unworthy one of those disciples, I touched Jesus. 
It was as if they were his body. It was as if they were his flesh. And when I martyred them, I martyred him. And when I beat them, I beat him. And when I rejected them, I rejected him. And when I tortured them, I tortured him. So he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? That is the mystery of Christ. Oh, glory. It would transform every life in this room if you saw it. But we don't. Few of us really see it. We think we see it. We mentally appreciate it. But few have ever really seen it. It, 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 it is like a spiritual blockbuster. You suddenly realize what union with God really means. You suddenly realize what union with Christ really means. We've become his body. We've become me his members. We've become his limbs. We have become partakers of the divine nature. Somehow or other, we've been introduced into God's Christ. We are in him. Oh, it's tremendous. And so the apostle speaks of this mystery. He said, this mystery is great. Just as woman was taken out of Adam, bone and flesh, out of his open side, so the apostle John in the 19th chapter of his gospel says, And this soldier went up and pierced his side with a spear, and forthwith there came out blood and water. And then as if it meant a tremendous amount to John the Apostle, he said, And I who bear witness, my witness is true. And most people would say, Well, what is he getting so excited about? The, the, the thing to get excited about is he just said it. Jesus uttered a cry, finished! That's the thing to get excited about. But not John. John was not only excited about the word finished. He said, you know what it was? His side was open and out of it came blood and water. And later writing a letter, he said, there are three things, blood and water and spirit. And what he was really saying was, that, this is the last Adam. This is the second man. He was put to sleep on the cross. When he said finished, he died. His eyes closed. His spirit went and his side was open. And out of his side was taken the church. The bride. She came out through blood and water. Created out of him. Out of his life. Out of his nature. Out of his sacrifice. Out of his death. So that when he was raised from the dead, it was as if he said... This is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. So that on the day of Pentecost, when he got to obtain the promised Holy Spirit from the Father and poured out the Holy Spirit upon the whole church, it was as if he was saying, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. This is me. This mystery is great, said the Apostle Paul, but I speak of Christ and the church. Oh, if we believers only saw what a wonderful thing this is. How tremendous this is. It would, it would revolutionize not only our lives, but our living. 
And then, of course, I think of Ephesians chapter 1 in the same connection uh, and verse 9 to 11 where the, the apostle had introduced this matter. But I think when you don't, as it were, get hold of his marvelous digression in chapter 3, this becomes very heavy. But listen to it as he puts it now in the light of what I've said. Making known unto us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure which he purposed in him unto a dispensation of the fullness of the times to sum up all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and the things upon the earth in him. I say, in whom ye also were made a heritage, having been foreordained according to the purpose of him who worketh all things according to the counsel, after the counsel of his will. Well, I find that absolutely marvelous. <clears throat> it means that your, your salvation, your conversion, wasn't some afterthought of God. He sort of saw you in an evangelistic meeting and said, oh, so-and-so looks interesting, I'll save them. According to this, it says you were foreordained in some fathomless way, unfathomable way, that you and I will never be able to understand. Somewhere back there, before time's eternal, God knew us all. Now, if this is wonderful, don't you think then there's something for you and I to start sitting up about and sort of saying, do I understand this thing? Maybe mentally I appreciate it, but get rid of that mental business. Mental truth, mentally appreciated truth, is grave clothes. Whenever we get something just up here, it ties us, inhibits us, binds us, darkens us. It's only when it comes by divine illumination and suddenly it lives and we see it that then we're alive to God and the thing becomes power and life and grace. So, I don't care who you are or however long you've been walking with the Lord. Ask him for fresh revelation on this matter. Let the Lord shine into your heart on this matter. Take those Colossian words now. Go over to those in Colossians chapter 1 and, and verse uh, uh, 26. We read them. Listen what the apostle says here. Now, again, it's very interesting. He speaks about things that are perhaps... Uh, things that are perhaps they are difficult things. They are things beyond the normal ken. He speaks about filling up in his flesh what remains of the sufferings of Christ for the body's sake, which is the church. I doubt whether anybody has really fully understood what that means, except that in some way our Lord has left a little residue of suffering, which he calls his own sufferings. And he says, you can come into the fellowship of it, if you want to. And what is it all for? 
something so deep, something so profound, something uh, so unusual. What is it for? It is, he says, the dispensation of God, stewardship of God, which was given me to you all to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery, which has been hid for ages and generations, ages and generations, generations one thing, ages is another. So that means all the ages and generations, hid for ages and generations, but now hath it been manifested to his saints. Manifested to his saints, not just to the special ones, or those that the popes at one time or another canonized, many of whom have now been found never to have existed in the first place. These are biblical saints. That is, those whom God has saved. God has sanctified. So now what happens? Look again. But now had it been manifested to his saints, to whom God, to whom? To the saints. To whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. I find that very wonderful. This mystery among the Gentiles. <laughs> so what it really means is that if you're a Christian, you're not a Gentile. You are in the Israel of God. You've been introduced into something else. This mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Now in the Greek, in you is in the plural. In you all. Not just in me personally, but in you and you and you and you and you and you. Christ in you all. The hope of glory. So there we have something else about this mystery. And if you go on, of course, then the apostle starts to talk about the personal side. He says, and we labor day and night. Why? That we might present every man perfect in this Messiah. <coughs> and then he goes on in, in the next paragraph that they may know the mystery of God, even Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we have to underline the simple fact that the way in which the apostle introduces this matter of the mystery of Christ is not some optional truth, glorious, but not fundamental, but something which is vital, fundamental to our whole understanding of God's purpose and fundamental to our whole understanding of the age in which we live, in which we are found. In other words, and I use the word carefully, not just uh, uh, as a speaker, but carefully, it is in fact strategic. This whole matter of the mystery of Christ being revealed to us, being manifested to us, made known to us, is to do with the strategy of God. Not just the strategy of God for a few people in a particular generation, but the strategy of God in saving mankind through his Son, in redeeming the church, which is his body. 
Now, I don't know how much that means to you this evening, but you see, we always have to fight with the clock. Have you ever really understood what this third mystery means? What does it mean? In common usage, the word mystery means, listen, a secret for which no answer can be found and for which no explanation is adequate. Shall I say that again? In common usage, when we use the word mystery, we mean a secret for which no answer can be found and for which no explanation is adequate. They speak about some sort of happenings in some so-called haunted house, and the scientists all go down there, and then they say it is a mystery. They have ideas, but their ideas do not constitute an answer, and their explanation is not adequate to the fact. Now, it's not just that. There are all other kinds of things, which they call mysteries. But whenever they say something is a mystery, they mean, at present, it eludes us. Now, that is the way most believers consider the mystery of Christ, something that eludes them. And that is the tragedy. They have taken a completely contemporary idea of the word mystery and transferred it. For them it is something that God has made a secret for which there is no answer. No answer can be found. And for which no explanation is adequate. And that is not the meaning of this word. In biblical usage, particularly the New Testament, the Greek word means, listen carefully, that which is known only to the initiated. That means something a little different. <laughs> that which is known only to the initiated. You see, now, <clears throat> this will horrify some people, but it's just as well, because some people get so worked up on pagan things, you say, oh, dear, 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 dear. can't use any pagans on. But you see, <clears throat> the, the New Testament uses lots of words that had pagan origin, and this is one of them. You see, in classical Greek, this word was used of initiates into the Greek mystery religion. And the Apostle Paul knew all about that. It was a very common thing. Because there were all kinds of sort of secret religious societies, and uh, you had to be initiated into the mysteries. It's very interesting, really, because um, only the, uh, the initiated could share an understanding of whatever it was, you see. Now, the Apostle Paul makes actual references and uses the very word in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12, where he says, I know how to be abased, and I know also how to abound in everything and in all things, have I learned the secret? And that in the Greek is, I have been initiated. 
I have been initiated. And this is the root of this word translated mystery. It is to be initiated. So much more than getting the idea it's something withheld from you, it is something into which you are initiated. Perhaps you don't like that word initiated. Shall we say introduced? Into which you've been brought? To which you've been introduced? you begin to see it like that, it tra transforms the whole thing. The Holy Spirit uses this word with the emphasis, as Vine says, not on knowledge withheld, but on truth revealed. And then comes the punch. We thus discover that all the terms associated, nearly all the special terms associated with this word in the New Testament are all to do with our understanding. Listening, listen. We're, we're told the mystery is made known unto us or manifested to us or revealed to us or preached to us or we are told about whereby you can perceive my understanding of the mystery. It's not, the emphasis is not on that it's withheld, but that it's communicated. Now, I find this really rather uh, wonderful, that every born-again believer is an initiate in this matter. Um, you haven't got to be special, you haven't got to be elite, you haven't got to be one of the overcomers. If you're born of God, you're, you're a candidate. <laughs> Um, for, for being introduced into this truth that God has revealed and wants to illuminate for you. And therefore, we have to ask. You see, so many of us have got this strange idea. People sometimes come to me and say, you know, God has never spoken to me in my life. Well, of course not. You've got that disease, right? I knew a boy once who actually became deaf because he didn't want to hear. He grew up in a noisy family, he didn't particularly like his father or his mother, and so he developed a kind of mental deafness, which finally became a physical de deafness. Do you know there were thousands of believers like that? It's not that they didn't want to believe, they had a funny idea that God would never, ever speak to them. Oh, he'll speak to Lance, and he'll speak to Ron, and he'll probably speak to some of the others, but to me, I mean, God will never speak to me. And we have the same idea about this matter of the mystery. We say, oh, dear God, he wouldn't reveal it to me if I was a watchman moon, right? Or Amy Carmichael. Or one of the great men and women in the church militant. I I'm sure he might then consider revealing it to me. But, but, but not to me. But just wait. If you're born again, you are a candidate. It's the only, only ground up that God requires is that you've been saved by his grace. And if you've been saved by his grace, you're a saint. That's your standing. You may not be a saint yet in character, but your standing is that. <coughs> and if your standing is that, your birthright is this. God wants to make known to you this mystery among the Gentiles. <coughs> 
Well, I, again, I say this is, to me, this is something very, very wonderful. You see, even in the Old Testament, you've got the same thing. Uh, the Hebrew equivalent of this Greek word is an Aramaic word, ral. And it, it has the same, we, we've translated, it's been translated in our Bible in uh, Daniel chapter 2, if you want to look at it, and in verse 27, in pretty well the same way. So, Daniel chapter 2, And verse 27, 28. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets. That's the same word. Only in Hebrew. <laughs> See? And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Then in verse 47, listen to what the king says. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets. Seeing thou hast been able to reveal this secret. The Holy Spirit uses the term of truth which cannot be naturally understood but has to come through revelation. No one can naturally understand God's salvation. It has to come through revelation. And the mystery of the gospel has to be revealed to everyone. So we can go out from Sunday school and know it all. But there comes a moment when shaft of light shines and now we say, ah, I see it. <laughs> and then what we've heard for years is translated into living. The mystery of the gospel. God initiates us. He introduces us. He brings us in. But then there are many other things as well that we have to uh, take uh, note of. Uh, <clears throat> really, it is the, the thought behind it, I asked Brother Shaw if he would like to think for a few moments and look up some of the things on this matter, and he did. And this is what he said, and I think it's very helpful. He said, well, the best way to put it is this. It is a secret revealed as a privilege. To the initiated. Well, I think that's very wonderful. Then note its use in the New Testament. I'll just give you the scriptures. Anyone wants to come up and get the, the things, I'll give them afterwards. But here you've got all the kinds. For instance, in Matthew 13, verse 11. We, we read of the mysteries of the kingdom. Unto you had it been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But to the rest, parables. Remember? Unto you had it been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Not mystery, but mysteries of the kingdom. The secrets of the kingdom. And then what about 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1 when the Apostle Paul speaks of them being ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries. Oh, I wish there were more servants of the Lord that were stewards of the mysteries. <laughs> Don't you think so? You see, I mean, if, 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 if a man hasn't seen the mysteries himself, how can he communicate them? But once God has started to show you and illuminate you and you begin to see something, you can communicate it to others, not at once. 
I always say that when God first reveals something to you, I always find it takes you two years before you can start talking. <laughs> and to begin with, you only have seen something, and you know when other people are talking, when they're talking on that subject, you go, no, that's not right. That's not right. I, I know it's not right. I can't put it into words, but it's not right. You can't explain it. If you do, you get tongue-tied, and people can tie you up in knots. But after a, a year or so, suddenly, it's as if an open door. You can utter the mystery of Christ. You can begin to communicate. Or, or think of this. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, we've read it, it's the supreme mystery, the mystery of Christ. And in Colossians chapter 2 and verse uh, 2, he puts it this way, that they might understand the mystery of Christ, they may understand the mystery of God, even Christ. And then comes the most wonderful thing of all when you've understood that. In Revelation and chapter 10 and in the midst of all those visions of persecution and martyrdom and dreadful beasts and dragons, serpents and the whole thing in foment. Then we read this wonderful verse 10, chapter 10, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then is finished the mystery of God, according to the good tidings which he had declared to his servants, the prophets. So the mystery of Christ, the mystery of God, even Christ, it's going to be completed. And it's going to be completed in the midst of the whole world in foment. It's going to be completed according to the good tidings which he declared to his servants, the prophets. So it's not going to be less. It's not going to be a kind of half-done work. It's going to be completed, accomplished, absolutely perfected. Well, I want to be in that. But how can you be in I, How can you and I be really in if we don't even see it? If we've never got on our knees and said to God, Oh, Lord, you've saved me, but I don't understand this mystery. I want to understand it. Or then think of these other mysteries. i just give them quickly to you. The mystery of Israel. Romans 11, 20, some people go, Oh, they get so tied up on this. It really is a mystery. For them it's a secret withheld. But it doesn't have to be. It says, the Apostle Paul says, About this, this mystery is great. But then he talks about a hardening in part, which is the fall in Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so shall all Israel be saved. So some people get tied up in knots over this. Some people, when they heard me last Thursday, they sort of said, well, does it mean then that, um, that Israel's got priority over the house of God? And, and um, uh, isn't it a little sideline that we're now uh, getting caught up into what rubbish? It's not Israel and the church. In some wonderful way, in the end, it's Israel and church come together. That's yet to be. Praise the Lord. The mystery of Israel, it is a mystery. Lies behind everything. Actually underlies the church. It is the root that carries the church. The church really, in this age, are the branches which are carried by that root. Praise the Lord. And then there's the mystery of the rapture. Well, I'm waiting for that. 
I don't know whether I'll get there. Maybe you'll be burying me uh, before we come to that rapture. But it doesn't bother me too much because I think that even if it's a little while, the dead in Christ shall rise first. <laughs> I remember saying that to dear Mrs. Hall. And she knew she was going. But we won't get there before you. She lived a whole life in the light of the coming of the Lord. No one in the Advent Testimony Preparation Movement, I would have thought nearly from its inception, <laughs> but you know, when the Lord comes, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are not alive and remain shall be caught up. They'll not, we'll not prevent them. <laughs> They'll be there first, and then we. And then the Apostle says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. The dead in Christ and those who are alive at his coming, their bodies will go to a transfiguration in a moment of time. Suddenly, the body of sin. Don't, you see, people say such silly things. You see, they say, you know, about like a funeral. Like, I don't like the word funeral, but you know what I mean. They say, what's it matter? Listen, don't you understand, Dumkop, that when you come to the end, right at the end, when the Lord comes, if you're alive, it is your actual body that's transfigured. Is there another body that comes down and says, the Lord says, take that one out of the way, and down comes the other one, and you jump into it, ah, no, this body, that's the miracle of it. It was your spirit that was dead in sin, that was raised and justified, and it was your soul that has been saved, and now it is your actual body with its sin. And somehow God drives the sin out of its body and redeems it in a twinkling of an eye. That's less than half a second. That's a mystery. I find it just as much a mystery to think of the dear Apostle Paul or some of the others who've been for t almost 2,000 years dust, I mean their bodies. And then suddenly when the trumpet turns and the word of the Lord and the earth, the dust comes together, the atoms make up the body again. And we have a raised body, a resurrection body. I can't wait for it. I think it's so wonderful. You know, I mean, go through the wall. Oh, I just think. <laughs> they just walk straight through the wall and out the other side. Just like our Lord did, suddenly come to a door and stay in the midst, and yet eat a meal. People say, oh, but are we going to eat? Yes, because our Lord ate boiled fish. So I take it that we're going to have something to eat. <laughs> I don't know who's going to do the cooking, but I, 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 I know that we're, that we're going, it's, it's not going to be some sort of ether-type existence floating around disemboweled spirits. You know, sort of, um, I mean, that kind of idea that the people have got, that Christians, so many Christians have got, it's a Greek idea, a kind of thing that we no longer got bodies. God never made us like that. If he wanted to make us angels, he would have made us that way. They are spirits without bodies. God made us spirit, soul, and body. When Moses went before Pharaoh, Spurgeon once said in that great sermon, and said that when they went out, not a hoof nor a horn shall be left in Egypt. And dear old Spurgeon said, you know what that means? Not a toenail of a believer's body will be 
and left forsaken. Not a hair! And that's what our Lord said. Not a hair of your head shall perish, he said. Now, that's literal. He didn't mean literally every head, but I mean every hair of your head. That would be a bit of a job for some um, who are losing it every day. Um, not that heaven's not up to um, uh, computerizing uh, <laughs> and exactly how many hairs you've got at any given moment. But um, I, that's not it. What it means is this. Not a single atom of your body will be left Satan or to corruption. Not an atom. And so amazing was this that the Apostle Paul said, according to that power whereby he shall change this vile body into his own likeness. Our salvation is absolutely marvelous. It's a mystery. Well, it is a mystery. That's all I can say. But it's initiated. We're initiated into it. We don't understand exactly how it's going to happen, but at least it's been revealed to us. At least to me it has. I only know I've got a body, and I know that this body's not going to be left to Satan. Praise God for that. I'm redeemed. Not just what's inside. I am a redeemed being. Spirit, soul, and body. Thank God. I've got no part with that evil creation or with that usurper of the authority of God. I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, by the Passover blood of the Lamb, and I belong to him. Not a hoof or a horn of me is going to be left in Egypt. Well, I hope you see that. Make sure you put it in your will. <laughs> in a decent burial. Proper burial, not just shoved into the ground, sort of willy-nilly, but it doesn't matter. Don't get there. The thing is that we, 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 we have a, an amazing connection between this actual body and our resurrection body, and those of us who are alive and remain, it will actually happen, and that's why he called it a mystery. He says, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. It will be amazing, won't it? You with your aches and pains, and me with mine, and suddenly in the twinkling of an eye, she'll look at you and say, oh. And you'll look at me and say, wow. <laughs> What's happened? I suppose you won't have time to be able to do anything like that. We'll be with the Lord. Then it's the mystery of faith. By the way, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 21. Then it's the mystery of the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9. That's a very interesting one, the mystery of the faith. And then there's the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And then there's the mystery of lawlessness, which we shall soon see with our own eyes. The mystery of lawlessness. My word, I think we need to be initiated. I think a lot of Christians will be taken by this Antichrist if they don't watch it. If there's enough darkness in them, and enough ignorance, many could be swept along, just like German Christians were swept along by Adolf Hitler. Unless we've been initiated into the mystery, so that we are alive, alert. We have some understanding. We have an anointing which teaches us what is true and what is a lie. Now, you see, this is a great subject, isn't it? It doesn't seem to me that it's some small matter. It really does seem tremendous. So I end by just finally tying it all up and saying, who are those to whom these mysteries are revealed? 
Who are the initiated? To whom does God reveal, reveal the mystery of Christ? Now, there may be, of course, many mysteries of the kingdom, but the comprehensive mystery is the mystery of Christ. And the answer is very simple. It's twofold. Those who are born of God, it's as simple as that. It is the birthright of every born-again believer. Listen to the words of our Lord in Matthew 13, verse 11. Unto you has it been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, he wasn't just speaking of 12 apostles. He was speaking of them as being the ones whom the Father had given him, and he was keeping. And in that great high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, I pray not only for them, but for all of those who believe on me through them. <coughs> That's you and me. Or again, Colossians 1, verse 26 and 27, it says, manifested has been manifest, but has now been manifested to the saints to whom God was pleased to make known what is this mystery. Has God been pleased to make known what is this mystery to you? Maybe you've never thought about it, never sought him, never humbled yourself before him. What a tremendous need then there is to seek the Lord for such illumination and understanding. We haven't a lot of time left to us. But surely one of our great priorities which should be to seek the Lord for this. Lord, give me understanding. How does it affect our life here? How does it affect our building up? How does it affect our contribution, our participation? What does it mean as far as our gathering together is concerned? What does it mean for my personal life, my business life, my career life? What does it mean for my family life, my home life, my relationships? Surely something like this is so comprehensive that it, it, it brings it all within its scope. I think we have to recognize then just these four things, if we're going to really understand the mystery of Christ. You're born of God. You might say to me, well, he just said it. We're born of God. Oh, and the second thing is we, such revelation and illumination can only come through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you can read it from 9 to 12, it's often misquoted. It speaks of things which God hath prepared. The eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, heart has not perceived, or understood what God has prepared, but it has been revealed unto us by the <coughs> Spirit. So it's something that has been revealed, we've got to clear it off. And then he says, we cannot know the things of God except by the Spirit of God which hath been given to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. I think that's very, very important indeed. And that's why the Apostle Paul prayed that the spirit of wisdom and revelation be granted to them that they might know. And then explain all that they should know. Now what are these four things? 
You see, you might say to me, isn't that enough? If it's the Holy Spirit who does it, and you have to be born again, that's enough. No, that's just the tragedy. I, I know thousands and thousands of born-again believers who haven't got the slightest idea as to what the mystery of Christ is. It's their birthright. God wants to reveal it to them. They don't know. They've never bothered their little heads about it. There are four things. The first is humility. I don't care who you are. You might have walked with the Lord for years, or seemingly, but where there is no humility, there is no revelation. And our Lord put it so very, very simply in Matthew chapter 11. It might be worth, because we normally only think of it as in a gospel context, but it wasn't in a gospel context that he spoke it. Matthew 11 and verse 25, Jesus said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and understanding, and didst reveal them unto babes. Now, a babe is a very defenseless thing. No arrogance. No sufficiency. Babe is a very dependent being. And then he goes on. Yea, Father, for so it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been delivered unto me of my Father, and no one knoweth the Son, save the Father, neither doth any know the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son willeth to reveal him. So you can serve and shout and sing and do everything else, but if the Son doesn't will to reveal to you the Father and the heart of the Father, you'll never see. And that brings us to a place of humility. You can't be arrogant here. You can't push something. You can't assert yourself. You must humble yourself and listen to these lovely words. We never read it all together. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my burden, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Humility, that's the first thing. And the second thing is recognition. That may sound to you very simple, but the second thing is, is very important. What do I mean by recognition? I very rarely, in all the places I go to, I hardly ever hear brethren really recognizing before God how unwise they are. I'm always surprised because the very first lesson I ever learned the day after I was converted was taught me by a Swedish sister who I knew as Auntie Dagmar. And she said, if you ever want to get anywhere with God, there's one thing, she said, you must always ask, and that is for wisdom. And she turned me in the book that I had never read in my life and read out a promise in James, chapter 1. I had never heard of James. Chapter 1 and verse 5. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth liberally unto all men, and who upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And I don't know what happened, but it burnt itself into my heart. And from that day onwards, twice a day, every morning and every evening, uh, when I was 12 years of age, 
And right the way through all, for many years, I used to say to the Lord, Lord, I ask you for wisdom. I had none. You see, I don't think revelation ever comes <coughs> unless we recognize that we have no natural revelation. It all comes from God. It's, you see, if any man lack wisdom, no one's going to ask for wisdom if he doesn't think, if he doesn't think there's a need. If he thinks, well, I, I know the Lord. I don't, I don't need wisdom. But if you know you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. And that's so beautiful. It's not as if the Lord says, you are so stupid. Always asking for wisdom. Why do you always come back asking for wisdom? He doesn't upbraid. The very recognition of our lack of wisdom is enough to touch his Father's heart. That's the second thing. The third thing is the Holy Spirit. I've already quoted the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Let's read it to you. But we receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that were freely given to us of God. And then it goes on. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him... And he cannot know them because they're spiritually judged. Spiritually discerned. So the Holy Spirit, you'll never, ha you'll never come into any understanding of the mystery apart from the Holy Spirit. You can settle that right now. You go to Bible college, theolog theological seminary, read theological tomes, and I don't know what else. You can come to every Bible study going in this place, but until you ask for the Holy Spirit graciously to be poured out upon you, and to break through all the inhibitions in your life, you can't go on and on in, a, in, in revelation. Sometimes he's there, but quenched. Sometimes he's there, but locked up. That's the third thing. And the last thing is the cross. You can never really come into an understanding of of the mysteries of the kingdom, of the mystery of Christ and of God, except through the operation of the cross. Now you might wonder where that is, but I'll read it to you. It's in 2 Corinthians and chapter 4. 2 Corinthians and chapter 4 and verse 6. Again, often not associated with this, but this is it in context. Seeing it is God that said, let light shine. That said, light shall shine out of darkness, who shined in our hearts. To give the knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side, yet not straitened. Perplexed, yet not under despair. Pursued, yet not forsaken. Smitten down, yet not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus. That the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. You know, light is a wonderful thing. But if you want to know real light, you've got to go the way of the cross. If you want to have a life without any perplexity, without any breaking, 
without any dying, you'll have no revelation. To have revelation, you have to go that way by the Holy Spirit. Not that way by which everybody else knows you're going that way. Grim, dark, heavy. Oh, the way is the cross. That's not the way of the cross. The way of the cross is when the Holy Spirit so fills you that people, when they touch you, only touch vitality, life, and joy. It's life in them, death in us. There's something terribly wrong when we touch others and we touch death. You're really walking the way of the cross. Everyone else gets life. And when they touch you, they don't touch death at all. They touch only life. They touch revelation. They touch light. They touch love. They touch power. But for you, personally, inwardly, it may be a very different story. That is revelation. And when the Apostle Paul was caught up to the third heaven and saw things and Things were revealed to him and heard things which were not even lawful for a man to utter. Then a thorn was given to him in his flesh, a messenger from Satan to bring him down. So it's always so. The greater the revelation, the more the Lord has to take measures to see that we're kept humble, broken, and dependent. May the Lord help us in this matter. I've only introduced it this evening. I hope that you will start to explore these things, looking through the <coughs> scriptures, really asking the Lord, give me light on this matter. I want to really know this. Just get this one thing. This is not something which is withheld from you. This is something which God wants to communicate to you in such a way that it floods your whole life and being. May God do it for us all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we need such revelation. And only thou canst give it to us. Oh Lord, we pray that every one of us may have an understanding of the mystery of Christ. Dear Lord, oh, that it might be born into our hearts in such a way that it will come as joy and peace and life and power. We may know the Lord in deeper ways, we may discover him in ways we have never discovered him before. Use this evening to that end, Lord. Give us a horizon. Give us a goal. Give us some understanding, Lord, of what we're in. And help us. And we ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.